e-longevity, bringing space, crypto, and longevity science discussion to the masses. Welcome. We're happy that you're here. Welcome to the e-longevity podcast, everyone. This is our flagship effort to bring e-longevity to the masses. Uh, I'm codenamed Lou, one of the early Discord admins and a Dojodon lover, of course. Um, and this is episode 10. So let me answer this question. What is e-longevity? We've never really answered that question. Um, but here, here's what, you can, uh, what we can say. It's the progressive elaboration of a word derived from the collaboration of Dojodon Mars and Methuselah Foundation, showing the synergy trying to propel advances in space, longevity science, and medicine. And we believe that through our efforts, we will achieve Methuselah's goal, turning 90 into the new 50 by 2030. And let me introduce my wonderful co-host, Britannia00. How are you doing this evening? Good evening, uh, Britannia00. Um, I bring with me an MBA and MHA, and um, I work as a consultant in the neurology space for a biotech company here. Um, and I have been a Dogalong holder since, gosh, March of 2021, May 2021. And I'm extremely excited about our guest this evening. Me too, for sure. Today's guest is an integral part of the mission we spoke about before. Um, she is a co-founder and CEO at Center for Contemporary Sciences, working to replace ineffective animal testing with superior human biology-based methods a neurologist, public health specialist as well, and also a, an accomplished artist, Dr. Aisha Akhtar. Welcome. How are you feeling tonight? I'm feeling great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're very happy that you're here. So just to begin, so everyone can get to know you, please give us a little bit of detail about where you come from. What's your origin story? Sure. Um, well, my family is originally from Pakistan, although I was born in England and um, I used to have the old East End kind of English accent, you know, like, Ma, turn off the wall. <laughs> um, not the nice sounding, <laughs> intelligent, you know, upper crust sounding English accent. But um, when I was six, we moved from England to the US and I quickly lost that English accent and very Americanized. Um, but um, so grew up here uh, in the DC area uh, for most of my life. And I just always knew I was going to go into the sciences in one way or another, the bio biological sciences, or I was gonna be a doctor. I, I did do a foray into physics. I was hoping maybe I could go into astrophysics, but I wasn't smart enough. <laughs> um, but that would have been a dream job for me. But um, I did end up going into neurology um, and um, as a practice and uh, got another training in public health and preventive medicine afterwards as well. Wow, that's quite the, the CV there. <laughs> so. Here's my question. How did you get involved in art? Before we get into all of your scientific accomplishments, your work, um, I noticed that you're a very accomplished artist. Uh, we can, we'll, we'll link the, the website after, but, but how did you get into that? I love talking about my art because <laughs> um, it's, it's, such a, it's such a fun thing to talk about. I've been involved in art since I was little. You know, I was the odd kid, the odd, weird, nerdy kid sitting in the back of the class doodling caricatures of my other classmates and my teachers. 
So I always was into art. And then, um, believe it or not, um, what, what's that guy that um, so many people know he would do like the little happy little tree paintings and all that. Bob Ross. Um, Bob, Ross. That, Bob Ross. Bob Ross, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this was pretty bird. Yeah, exactly. So back in the 80s, you know, for all those who didn't know, the, you know, I taught myself, but I started actually, I used to video record Bob Ross that would come on PBS um, when I was in high school. So I set the recorder to record his shows when I was in school. And then when I would come home in the evening, I would practice painting along with his show. And that's how I really got started into painting. So that's how I progressed from, you know, pen, pen and ink and, and drawing and going into painting. And then I just really, really started learning everything I could about art. I bought a lot of books and just really trained myself. I absolutely love it. It's so necessary for, for me just to feel whole in a sense, right? It's a nice balance from the scientific work I do. Balance is definitely necessary. Thank you for telling us about that. I love art myself as well, too. I still doodle when I go to meetings and, and so forth. Sometimes people wonder if I'm listening, but I, I it actually helps me to think. But also, I, I appreciate that uh, some people either are, you know, science and mathematic driven versus, you know, artistic and, and literature driven. But it's nice to find someone who, who has balanced both worlds. If you want to find out more about her art, you can go to A Y S H A art.com that's aishaart.com okay so thank you for telling us about that and feel free to weave it in in the future when it comes to your neurology um uh, and that part of the podcast too but we noticed that you have a plethora of jobs or you've worked uh, but so what was it like working for the fda how did you get there fda you know i tell people no one no one grows grows up saying one day i want to go work at the fda right that's not really what people <laughs> aspire to so it was definitely not one of the things that I, where i thought i would end up but um after i completed my training in neurology and then my public health and preventive medicine training i really wanted to i rather than working in clinical care i really wanted to work on larger public health issues and so there, the FDA was just kind of, just happened to fall in my lap, basically. Um, and so I started there thinking I was only going to be there for a couple of years, ended up being there for a decade. Um, so I was a decade there. And the, the last five, six years, I was in their Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats, where we prepared for threats like pandemics, bioterrorists, attacks, things like that. Then after the FDA, I moved to the Army, where I was the deputy director of their traumatic brain injury program. And as you can imagine, traumatic brain injury is a big problem for soldiers, not just in the US, but worldwide. Um, and so I was there to help uh, create the preventive and treatment uh, strategies for soldiers with traumatic brain injury. And then um, after a few years there, I left um, and decided to set up a new nonprofit organization, the Center for Contemporary Sciences. And we launched, this wasn't planned, but we launched just as everyone was being sent home at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. So it was an odd time to launch a new nonprofit organization. And so Aisha, um, can you speak to 
so the end of last year, beginning of this year, the FDA um, or the government signed the FDA Modernization Act 2.0. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your role in that and then the journey to get that bill signed? Sure. Yeah, actually, the FDA Modernization Act, I mean, it it went through Congress in record time for a bill to um, be introduced and then basically get signed into law in about a year, year and a half time is pretty, uh, you know, pretty remarkable. And that's what happened here. And I think it's because it just made so much sense. So what the FDA Modernization Act does is that it goes back to a 1938 law that required that required that all drugs must be tested on animals for safety and efficacy. Now you think about that. So, you know, that was put into law in 1938, but the science of medical research and drug development has really changed since 1938 for the better. I mean, there's so much more advancements. And so the FDA Modernization Act, basically what it does is that it removes that initial mandate that required animal testing. And it allows for drug developers to basically use other more advanced and really more um, effective types of testing methods that have been developed over the past five to 10 years. So it really opens up the doors for other types of testing methods to be used that can not only replace the use of animals in experimentation, but also be much more effective in telling us whether a drug or vaccine is actually going to be safe and actually work in humans. And my role in it was I helped draft some of the initial language, and then I was in the meetings initially with the both um, the co-sponsors on the Senate side, um, Rand Paul and uh, Senator Cory Booker, Democrat and Republican, getting a you know getting along in regard to this one bill at least, and um, and also helped put together the scientific um, facts and statistics that were um, put forth in support of the bill, and then organization, um, our organization, Center for Contemporary Sciences, helped recruit um, other scientific organizations and members to support their, to give their uh, support for the FDA Modernization Act. That's incredible. Um, many people don't realize, as I was speaking about the Modernization Act, uh, even myself, that, you know, animal testing was written into law in order to <laughs> reverse it, that a law had to had to change it as well too. So thank you for all of that work. I'm sure that billions of animals thank you for that as well too. Now, as we were researching your work and who you are, I, I found a TED talk from nine years ago, so almost a decade ago, uh, about you speaking about the the need for for these changes. So you're not new to the frontier of protecting animals, caring about them. So can you tell us about um, your journey? into caring about animals, pivoting from, you know, neurology and, into that, and then how you got to the TED Talk and how we got here today. Sure. I, I would say that as a kid, I had just a natural affinity for animals. A lot of people don't know this, but when, when we, you know, it's, uh, England doesn't have a lot of squirrels. So when my family first arrived in the U.S., we arrived in Washington, D.C., on that first ride from the airport to our motel. I, I was you know, six years old, face at the window, 
going around saying, Mom, Mom, look, look, because I saw all these little creatures running around with fluffy tails doing these acrobats in the trees. I had no idea who, who or what they were, did not know they were squirrels. I just, you know, was just so fascinated. So I had an inherent kind of fascination, and I would say love for animals as a little kid. And then, of course, that strengthened when my grandparents, who lived pretty much next door, adopted a dog named Sylvester. He was the first animal I'd ever known. He was my best friend, <laughs> just truly my best friend as a kid. I loved him. And um, then, um, you know, when I got older, I started rescuing animals. Like if I'd find orphan birds, I would rescue them, help rehabilitate them, take them to places where they can get rehabilitated and injured animals. And so it just, it just kind of progressed from there. But I never really thought about the larger issues of how we treat other animals until I was in high school. And this was back in the 1980s. So, you know, this was before the internet days. And my sister had um, seen a uh, commercial on TV and she thought it was for an environmental organization. So she sent a letter asking for more information. So weeks go by and then we get some information. Basically, it ended up being um, a brochure from PETA. And basically what we read in that in that booklet that we received was the story of what happened to one cow. One cow who was injured, um, she was a, a dairy cow, basically, and we, we read about the incredible suffering and, and abuse she endured during, um, uh, as she was uh, loaded onto a truck for slaughterhouse, for a slaughterhouse. And my family, we, we ate it. We ate animals, we ate meat. We never thought about the animals on our, on our plate. We had cats. We loved our cats. And it wasn't when we, it wasn't until we read this story called the down cow that we looked at our cats and we started saying, there's really no difference ultimately between our cats and, and the cows. What's the difference? They're all animals that can experience pain, can experience joy. So my family actually went vegetarian and then later vegan together. Um, and it just, it just made sense. And then that set me off on a whole journey to really learn more about how we as society treat other animals. And that led to me learning about animal use and experimentation. And that especially hit me hard because I always looked up to scientists and the people in the white coats thinking, you know, they're, they're going to be doing, they're, they're out there trying to save lives and they would never thought that they would try to, that they would hurt lives in the process, that they would hurt animals in the process. And so I made it sort of my mission throughout my professional career to, in whatever capacity I could, to really start to see if I can change the system, if I can help move us away from the use of animals in experimentation. Um, not to cut you off, I, I just wanted yeah. to know if you could explain a little bit about what happened to the cow. If you can illustrate that oh, story yes. for us that, that set sure. this uh, train in motion. I can remember, yeah. Uh, do you want me to go ahead and start now? Yeah. So this down cow, she was called down because when, um, if I recall the story correctly, when an animal becomes sick, um, and no longer profitable, I guess, then they're termed down. And I may be absolutely 
saying this incorrectly, but it was um, basically she couldn't walk. This poor cow. Her legs had um, were um, incredibly uh, weak and injured, and she couldn't walk. And it was a story of how uh, basically a group of men were trying to load her onto a truck to get her to a slaughterhouse. Because she couldn't walk, they had difficulty getting her onto the truck. And this, as the story went, they were beating her and prodding her to try to move her into the truck. And this poor cow was crying out, crying out with her suffering and her pain. And it was just one story of this one cow. And then my family then started to learn and read about the entire industry of animal agriculture and the slaughterhouse industry. And this one, the story of this one cow was no exception by any means. It's pretty much the default. Um, so you, when you think about the word livestock, right, that's the word people use to describe animals in agriculture that are uh, reared in agriculture, livestock, they're stock. They're just like any other um, inanimate objects in a warehouse. So we remove their very sentiency. We remove the fact that they are living beings who suffer and experience emotions. So that, that word really really captures how these animals are treated throughout the industry. Mm. Well, thank, thank you for sharing that. Definitely gives us something to, to, to meditate on for sure. Britannia? Um, yeah, so Aisha, you know, I think you're actually the first guest that we've had on that's um, really connecting longevity space and medical research and development with animals and human and animal rights and then also environmentalism with um, spark from the centers of contemporary sciences your organization which talks about um, pandemic pandemics and antibiotic resistance and then also um, the farmland and animals on farmlands um, I guess as it relates to lo the longevity space Share, can you share with our listeners how those three components come together for longevity? Of course, yeah. So longevity isn't just about increasing our lifespan. It's about improving our life here on this planet while, we, while we're on it as well, right? The reducing our risk of disease. So when you think about what are the, some of the major threats we face right now, A, climate change and environmental destruction. We cannot, cannot deny that. That is a major threat, not only for humanity, but every other species pretty much on this planet, except for maybe mosquitoes, which are, which are booming in, in this um, atmosphere. And B, the other major threat, um, and we just got the first taste of it, but another second major threat is pandemics. Pandemics are on the rise and it's on the rise truly because of human activities. And it's on the rise because of our destruction of habitats, which bring humans closer to wild animals, animals which we normally don't normally interact with on a daily basis. So that can lead to greater risk of spillover of infectious diseases from other species into humans. We have a greater risk of pandemics from the wildlife trade, where we ship animals around the globe to use as exotic pets for zoos, circuses, um, for laboratories, for exotic foods, so on. 
And that also is, is, is increasing our risk of um, encountering new infectious diseases. And a third big reason why we have such a high risk of pandemics now is because of factory farming. And factory farming, you, which is where 95% of all animals raised for meat, eggs, and dairy are in factory farm or factory farm situations. And basically, you are crowding animals by the hundreds, sometimes thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands into a, a tight space, usually a shed, for example, when we're talking about chickens or turkeys or pigs. And there's crowded. It's such stressful and distressful conditions. So basically, these animals are sick all the time. And that also means that their immune systems are down. You know, when, when we get sick, right, when we're stressed or distressed, we're more likely to catch a cold because it's our immune system gets a hit when we're stressed out. That happens with other animals, too. So you've got this double whammy situation in factory farms. Animals are so crowded, which stresses them out and brings their immune systems down, makes it easier for them to catch infectious diseases. And of course, because they're so crowded, it's easier for them to catch it from each other and pass on a virus down the road. And each time a virus passes on to another animal, it can mutate to a very deadly form. So that's why there's a lot of concern right now about the bird flus and swine flus that are running amok in factory farms. So that's a number two threat for human health, right? That's a threat that can decrease our, our lifespan and also um, worsen our lives. Even if we survive these kinds of threats, we, we still face a lot of diseases as a result of climate change, environmental destruction, and factory farming or pandemics. And then, of course, the third arm in all of this is medical research. So we have these big threats to humanity and pretty much all other life on the planet. So we need the best medical research we can to not only combat these new threats that are coming about, but also to combat the all the other diseases we face and to help improve our life and improve our lifespans. So we work on all fronts. Um, at Center for Contemporary Sciences to basically reduce and minimize the threats to healthy lifespan and improve medical research so that we can improve our health through better therapeutics and um, better vaccines. Wow. I, I mean, there's so many things for us to consider. It's not just about us living lo as long as we can, because who wants to live as long as they can and have a, a super low quality of life. It's about enjoying our life, but not just us enjoying our life. We literally cannot live without other beings on this planet as well. You know, they help us in so many ways uh, in agriculture and, and so forth. So can you um, speak to the link between, um, and not just the reduction of suffering for animals, but why it's important for us to stop using animals in testing. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how I got into this issue in the first place. And I always was so upset about the suffering animals experience. And I've been exposed. I've seen them in laboratories throughout my career. I've seen the animals mm -hmm. in laboratories. I've seen what happens to them. I've also seen things from the human health side. So at my, in my 10 years at the Food and Drug Administration, 
I saw drug after drug come through the pipeline that people were very excited about, thinking this drug is going to be the big breakthrough for stroke. This is going to be the one that's going to treat spinal cord injury and so on. We, it, people would get so excited about a drug only to see it fail when tried in humans. And we saw this again and again, and it finally came out, and this is pretty well known now, that despite the fact that FDA requires all drugs, still requires all drugs and vaccines to be tested on other animals before they can proceed to human clinical trials, 90 to 95% of all drugs and vaccines that actually are found safe and effective in animals fail in humans and they fail because they are unsafe or they don't work in humans. So it's a huge, I mean, think about that, 95% failure rate. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous and that's mind boggling. Mm -hmm. What other industry accepts a 5% success rate? No industry accepts that, but for some reason this has been accepted when it comes to the safety and efficacy of the very drugs and vaccines we put into our own body. In addition to the, that failure rate, there is an incredible concern now, or a major concern, that we may have missed out on really good drugs, really drugs that may have been incredibly effective, maybe even cures, but they were never allowed to move past the pipeline because of results in animals that would not have applied to humans. So when you think about animal testing is so non-predictive of human results, not only at the end phase of the drug development process, but also at the earlier phase in drug development process, a lot of drugs never had the chance to even move through the pipeline because of results in animals that would not have applied in humans. So there is a very likelihood that there were drugs that we abandoned that would have been wonderful for a host of diseases that we face. The good news is that despite this incredible high failure rate, or because of it, I would say, there's been a real boon in a new industry in medical science and a new boon in an industry which I call the human relevant industry. Basically, there's been a development of testing methods now that have been coming out that are based on human biology. So they're very, um, they're, um, they, they're much more complicated, complex models that really capture human physiology, um, basically the human body. And so I call them human relevant because they're relevant to our species. You know, they're not um, specific, they're not relevant to a mouse's body or a cat's body or, or a monkey's body, but they're relevant to the human body. So they're human relevant. And Aisha, when you're when you're speaking of these methods, is is this um, done in the preclinical, what we would call the preclinical trials of whenever a uh, medication or molecules trying to go for um, FDA approval, um, like the in vivo? So, that's when you use um, that's when you use the the animal testing mostly in clinical trials, right? Yeah. So the preclinical, so in drug development, the preclinical for anyone who doesn't, um, isn't aware of this. So the preclinical basically means before human clinical means human. So clinical means human trials, preclinical means before you get to human trials. And that includes things like, um, cell, cell cultures, computer modeling, and of course, animal experimentation. Now, even though that phase includes many different types of testing methods, it's really the animal experimentation results 
that determine whether a drug will continue to move down the pipeline. And that is the problem because we know the animal experimental results are not predictive of what we're going to find in humans. So you're, you are absolutely right. Um, the, the organ on a chip technology, and we can go into that a little bit more, all these other new methods that have really been coming out over the past decade, wonderful new methods, would not only replace animal testing in that preclinical phase, um, but actually could be more effective and more predictive of what we're going to find when a drug or vaccine actually does move on to be tried in humans. And Aisha, how can the medical community educate the collective on um, the benefits of, of uh, non-animal uh, trials, right? Um, because, um, you know, how many subjects are going to sign up do you believe that subjects will sign up for to be in a pre preclinical trial um, without it being yeah. tested in in animals first? So I think there's there's still going to be some education because a lot of people have this false sense of security. They think that um, because something has been tested on animals, that means they're going to be safe. That's actually I would say is incredibly. I, so I, I um, served on clinical review boards, and we would decide whether or not to proceed with certain clinical testing when I was at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And one of the problems with part of that process and how the decision is made is that people look at the animal testing results to determine, as we talked about, whether to move on to human clinical trials. Well, we know that that doesn't mean that you're going to be safe. In fact, you're putting your life at risk because of um, a system that basically relies on using other species to predict what's going to happen in your body. So we 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 need to. So that see that's the people think that animal testing is what's going to protect them, and that's a false false assumption basically so we need to remove that false assumption so we need to re-educate folks about the the reality of animal testing how non-predictive it is and about the opportunities that come with much better testing methods and that people can actually enroll in clinical trials and be safer if we use these other models that are actually based on human biology I think it can be done, mm. right? I mean, you if I correct me if I'm wrong, the the first FDA modernization act was signed in 1938, right? So it's going to take a long right. it's going to take a long time. Well, I don't actually I don't I, I don't think it'll take that many years, but that was a long time ago. And so a lot has changed since 1938. So I definitely have hope and um yeah. I think this is it's, you're doing great things. Yeah, I think Thank we're on the you. you're, you're, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to no, say, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, that's what we're trying to do at Center for Contemporary Sciences to really change that old narrative. The old narrative that um, basically was, um, I, I was taught when I was going through medical school, we're all going to die unless we test on animals. And that was literally what was taught to me. And there was no room for actual discourse. And so that's an old narrative that, time, you know, the time it has gone, come and gone, it needs to be replaced with not only the new narrative that is, um, you know, that is now the reality, but also is actually the truth. By moving away from animal testing, by replacing it with 
more um, with models that are more human relevant. Not only is that better for animals, but it will be much better for human health as well. These models can really better help us understand human biology, better help us understand how and why we get the diseases we do, and better help us determine which drugs, which vaccines, and other therapeutics are going to be safe in us and will actually work. Aisha, you're by far the most passionate guest we've ever had. Just to let you know, <laughs> I really respect your passion and your dedication to this to this cause. So we've spoken in depth about the, the issues that we have. Um, so now let's talk about the solutions. You've mentioned it before, testing on, on, on chips, for example. Um, what would you define animal-free precision medicine as and how close are we? To, to solving one of the three major issues that you mentioned. Right. So um, there are there's a host of new technologies that's come about. One which has really have captured a lot of people's attention is what's called a like a human body on a chip or sometimes human organ on a chip. And basically there you're distilling a major component of an organ onto a microchip. So like a human lung on a chip actually breathes and functions like a major part of the human lung. So there's now a human lung on a chip, a human kidney on a chip, a human liver on a chip, even a human mini brain on a chip, a human heart on the chip. And these now, the next phase is actually connecting them with a circulatory system, a neurological system, lymphatic system, so that they are a complex model that's actually the human body on a chip. And not only that, we can start tailoring and creating models that are specific to each of our own unique biology. So one day, researchers are going to be able to create an Aisha on a chip using my cells and my tissues, right? So then if I get a disease, my doctor can use my chip my body on a chip model to screen which drugs are going to most likely work in me and which drugs will most likely be safe for me. And same, same with all of you. So that's where we're going. That is personalized precision medicine, where medicine is created and tailored for our unique physiology. And that's only going to happen by replacing animal testing and really not only using the methods that are coming out like human body on a chip, but putting governmental effort into funding the discovery of new, more methods, who knows what the big new breakthrough would be, and in improving these methods and getting them out there and getting them in use. Okay, so how close are we to it? Um, so this, this is like a segue into another question. What projects are you excited about and how close are we to getting that precision medicine and getting things tested to know, hey, this medicine is going to work for Codename Lou. This medicine is going to work for Aisha specifically. So how close are we to that and what projects are you excited about? Um, I predict that we're going to see the tipping point happen in about 10 years. And what I mean by that is that right now, the majority of research is still especially in drug development, using animals at that preclinical phase. But I suspect that we're going to see that really start to change in about 10 years. And that means once that tipping point happens, we're going to see a major, major and rapid change in the entire medical science industry and, and practice. 
So um, we at CCS were working really hard on all fronts to get this happening sooner if we can, get us to that tipping point sooner and better. So what that means is that we work on policy changes, for example, what kind of policy changes need to be made in addition to the FDA Modernization Act, what other policy changes need to be made to start really incentivizing the discovery and development of better human relevant methods. What kind of education needs um, does is needed for the public, for the media? So we've done many interviews with the media. We go out there and we educate the public. How do we build collaboration with other scientists, other research institutions to really get on board with this mission? And then how do we um, work with other scientists to fill what other scientific gaps there may be to really get us to that era of precision slash personalized medicine? And I will say that we will be um, launching soon an official animal-free precision medicine initiative. And we are working with the Methuselah Foundation, which is going to be launching a new prize in this area for um, Oregon on a chip technology. So we'll be working with them and really kind of messaging the prize and getting it out there, trying to build a collaboration, team of scientists around this. So we're incredibly excited. And I really do think this is going to be where medical science is going. This is undoubtedly the future of medical science. That's true. This week, that announcement came out about the liquidity pool and they're getting themselves ready to be able to fund that prize for sure. So this is definitely exciting times. Uh, Britannia? Um, yeah, so we're wrapping up pretty much, Aisha, and thank you for everything. Thank you for all of your work. Um, so two questions. What is your favorite music album of all time? And what book are you currently reading? And you can only pick oh one music God. album. <laughs> and I'll let you pick albums because you're super smart and you're probably reading three books at once. <laughs> you know, I was always so bad at knowing which are the albums. So it's a drive by cars. Was that an album? Was that an actual album? So that's one of my favorites, the cars. I love the cars. Does this date me? I no, mean, you know, I'm like one of those people who, <laughs> I know the cars. who still sings. You're, you're yeah, 80, who still listens. Baby. Like, yeah. I'm an okay. 80s girl. I was a teen in the 80s and I love that 80s music. So, yeah. Um, so, yes, one of my favorite. Um, but I, I like a host of a host of music uh, across so many genres. And a book I'm reading, boy, I think it's called Five Perfect Strangers. I just started it. It's a new suspenseful crime thriller. Um, and I'll let you know if it's any good. I did finish a horror book, CJ Tudor, I think that was her name. I just finished a horror book, but I love suspense, crime, mystery, historical fiction, sci-fi, and horror. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you so much. This what an interesting episode. We definitely would love to have you back. Maybe we can have you give a discourse on how things are going with with. Um, CCS with animal free precision medicine, but do you have any closing comments? Anything that you want our listeners, you know, they always say like the last thing that someone says is the first thing people remember. So what would you like to tell our listeners about you and in your goal uh, for this episode? Um, first of all, thank you both so much for such a wonderful conversation. And for the listeners, I would say, please join us. If you like what you're hearing, 
come and join us, help us make that medical, you know, uh, uh, future a reality as soon as possible. It's better for human health. It's kinder. Um, and we welcome you to join us, share our social media, uh, subscribe to our newsletters, get the word out to others. And if you're other research institutions, scientists, join our collaboration. Thank you. Where can they find it? What, what websites can they go to, to find all this information? Yeah, so we are contemporarysciences.org. You heard it here, folks. Thank you so much for being with us, Aisha. Thank you, Britannia. And thank you for our invisible audiovisual guy behind the scenes. You know who you are. We appreciate everyone here supporting and listening. Uh, and we really do appreciate what CCS is doing to, to help not just animals, but to help ultimately humans as well, too, to reduce suffering of all sentient beings on Earth. So this is the Elongevity Podcast. Thank you for 10 episodes. We look forward to doing much more. Uh, and good night.